3: host of the How To Academy podcast, a show sharing big ideas from some of the most exciting artists, leaders and scholars around. Twice a week, we host a big thinker for an in-depth exploration of their life and work. If you want politics, we've got Bill Clinton, Madeleine Albright, Alistair Campbell, Jess Phillips, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Rory Stewart, Chris Patton and Jeremy Hunt. If it's psychology you're after, we've got you covered too, with Ruby Wax on mental health, Susan Cain on introverts, Steven Pinker on rationality, and Julia Samuel on grief. Join us, and together we'll probe the mysteries of life with Richard Dawkins, and of the universe with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carlo Rovelli. We'll take a trip to Hollywood with Minnie Driver, John Cleese, Gina Davis, and Jamila Jamil, and go back in time with William Dalrymple, Satnam Sangera, and Young Chang. We've got Melinda Gates, Emily Ratakowski, Gloria Steinem and Isabella Yende on feminism Jane Goodall and Richard Powers on the environment and your cunning cast host Sir Tony Robinson with historian Peter Frankopan on how climate change has transformed our world If you want to know where comic book legend Alan Moore gets his ideas from how Nobel laureate Maria Risa fights dictators or why whistleblower Chelsea Manning wants to create a more transparent society we are the podcast for you that's the How To Academy podcast, your one-stop shop for big ideas. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: It's so exciting. Tell us what this is. What am I looking at? Something exciting, Tony?
5: Yeah, on my desk is, and I've just been sent this, uh, this is one, two, three, four, eight stamps about Blackadder that have just been released, and I'm I, I'm in, in about four or five of them in different guises from the, the different periods. And can you imagine? I was that eight-year-old nerd who loved philately. And uh, good, good uh, word. I, he knows the Thank word. you. It will get you nowhere. Uh, anyway, um, I, I would love to be able to travel back in time to the, and tell that eight-year-old boy one day you're going to be on a stamp. It is the most exciting thing that's happened to me since my knighthood, I have to admit.
4: It's utterly thrilling, Tony. Your head on how many stamps? Six I stamps. I think so. Something yeah. like yeah. that. You so, know. we're going to make what? an episode about stamps. We are. I've got to make an episode about No, absolutely. About I re- I've,
5: I've always wanted to make an episode about stamps. Right, we're doing uh, it. Uh, it they, it's a fascinating. And like, I mean... Coming stamps, soon to yeah. series now, two: value of stamps, yeah. history of stamps, history of stamps, very
4: George V, yeah. huge, but stamp not collector. just Penny
5: Blanks and stuff. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, Penny Blanks, did I just say? Penny. She's not. No, she's not really. Who's <laughs> uh, Penny Blanks. Uh, uh, yeah, it goes back different countries, different times. Yeah, Love it. We exciting.
4: are going to make an episode for series two on stamps yep. now. Tony, do you want to read the intro?
5: Oh yes, I will. Stand by, everybody. Here comes the intro. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. So we got to the end of season one, which I can't quite believe. It's been so fun and so fast. So I thought it'd be good to chew it all over with my producer, Melissa, and bring you my particular highlights from the series. Bring... Our particular highlights from the series, I think, Melissa, that should be.
4: Okay. I can I can bring, interject, absolutely, Tony. So let's take ourselves all the way back to Miriam. Yeah. Number one Miriam. What a star.
5: She was in Tuscany, wasn't she? She was.
4: Yeah, we did it over Zoom, didn't yeah, we? So and we, we don't just normally this... do that. No, and, no, and I
5: was a bit uneasy no. because I want like to see the whites of people's eyes. Yeah. But because it was Miriam, because I knew her so well, it was just more like having a phone call with mm. a mate. And... To me, what is great about her is that she is so intelligent. I mean, one knows that she's smart, that she's good at delivering lines. All the rude things that she says are always so calculated to best effect. But what I wanted people to see was a, the depth of Miriam. And, uh, and I think that's what we got. Miriam, I've known you and you've known me for, uh, well, it's got to be half a century now. But
0: We met in nineteen sixty. Six
5: and where are we now? Yeah, that is that. Yeah, yeah, it is over half a century, isn't
0: it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it was in Leicester, and you were extremely funny in a play called Dandy Caput. I was less funny, uh, but we got on like a house on fire, and it's where I became a lesbian, and it's when Britain won the World Cup. I don't think the two are connected particularly, but.
5: I think they may well be in some strange way in some universe.
4: Any highlights? Anything that was revealing? I mean, okay,
5: go on. I, I was going, to say, going to say Scottish accent. Scottish accent. Scottish accent. How are you were going to say that
4: I too? Love oh, that. You yeah. slightly put her on the spot because you said to Miriam, you know, your voice is is very posh, could be a bit off-putting, and you were really honest with her in a kind of slightly rude way, but she didn't take it rudely. Someone else might have done. Someone you've known for a long time. She didn't take it that way. But it revealed something really interesting about Miriam. Yeah. Was that actually, it was a vulnerability.
5: Yeah, she just put on a voice to obscure the fact that she was posh. Whereas what me and my mum have always done all our lives, is put on a posh voice to try and obscure the fact that we came from East London. One of the things I was most fascinated by was your diction. Now, I cannot believe that that was the way you spoke at school?
0: It absolutely was the way I spoke.
5: But In it's fact, so much if more... If you pre- listen,
0: just a minute, if you listen to all my classmates who are still alive, they all talk like this too. It was Oxford High School. It's quite posh, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. I wish it weren't, because my my emotional feeling is is to connect with people that's all i ever wanted to do is to connect and a voice like mine puts people off you know when i first went to australia and i started to speak i could see people recoil they were they were shocked at the purity of my vowels but i can't help it when i want to connect with strangers i usually go scottish because it's, um, it's friendlier. But my real voice is the one I'm talking to you in now. It's not just
5: the way you form your vowels, though.
0: You, you do use your
5: consonants very precisely. Your, 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 your tongue and your lips and your breathing are incredibly disciplined, like an athlete, really. You're like a mouth ath- athlete in many ways. <laughs>
0: Well,
4: (laughs) and I really trained
1: for that, you know.
4: Fascinating. Someone's always someone else, but actors are always actors. You know, it's just the actor in her. She adapts. Mm. She wants to meet people. She said also she wanted to, she was driven and motivated by meeting people. Mm. And she loved
0: making those documentaries because she just gets to travel and meet people. I have had the chance to travel around the world and talk to people. And it's, it's thrilling. I, I, I've got so much out of it and I'm doing more and I'm getting better at it, I think. I think one of the
5: in- interesting things about watching you is that um, you still are able to use quite a few of your actors' skills in front of the camera, the the, 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 the timing, the slapstick, the throwaway... Um, it's not just some person going around the world. It is, it's, it's a professional who knows what she's doing, who's going around the world, isn't it?
0: Well, I like to think that I can bring some of my dramatic skills or my comedic skills uh, to, the, to the job to make people feel more relaxed because that's the key, is I've got to be listening and opening up other people. And I think little jokes and little self-deprecating moments Helps. So that's something I am bringing with me. Wonderful person. We love that. We all
4: love that.
5: As is, he said seamlessly, Mike Parker Pearson when we made Stonehenge.
4: So this is Stonehenge episode two. Mm. There's an awful lot there. I was worried that people would just think, oh, it's a pile of old stones. Why do we want to know more about Stonehenge? But actually, the point is, people might have facts, bits and pieces of knowledge, but to put it all together like that was so brilliant. And Mike, what a guy. We we, we think
6: there's probably going to be a variety of monuments in Preseli, because, of course, we mustn't forget that as well as Stonehenge, we also found Blue Stonehenge down by the River Avon. And you were there again for that discovery. So realising that Stonehenge at the beginning, at least, is at least two monuments, which are later uh, coalesced into one. So I, I hope I think everybody else is be...
5: finding this as exciting as I do. <laughs> as you said that, I'm kind of bouncing up and down in my seat. Carry on. Uh,
6: and I, I think there's going to be at least a couple of monuments in Wales that that, that they're dismantling. Whether the one that we found called Wine Mound is uh, part of the construction or something that happens alongside, uh, we're, we're not entirely sure. But there I, has I been think...
5: a, quite an energised debate well, about indeed. that, hasn't there? <laughs> exactly.
6: And and I, I think the evidence now is. If they did supply any stones, it's a handful. So uh, we're on the hunt to see if there's somewhere else uh, within the area of the quarries that might have actually been where these were first put up.
5: He was my mate, Mike Parker Pearson. I've done loads of digs with him and we really get on. And I kind of forget that A, he's a prof and B, he is viewed worldwide as the preeminent specialist on Stonehenge. And I never really have time to press him deeply about Stonehenge because I'm t- too busy thinking about the documentary I'm making. Is he in shot? Am I asking him the right questions? Uh, Did he just slip up and say slightly the wrong thing? All those kind of things that you do during the course of making a show. So it was an absolute luxury for me to get him and two of my other friends off Time Team, Raksha Dave. Raksha, I'm sure most of you will know, who has become a very, very fine presenter. And Alison Sheridan, who not many people will know, but is a great fine specialist. She lives in Scotland and works in Scotland. You'd think, what is she doing looking at the finds from Stonehenge? And that was one of the most interesting things, the link between Stonehenge taking us on a travel all the way up to Scotland and Scottish Isles
7: they had also invented for themselves a brand new style of pottery up in orkney i mean essentially what you're dealing with is very very ambitious cowboys who are in a very fertile land and they were able to um use their surplus from their agricultural activities to build monuments and to travel long distances. So these guys up in Orkney had gone to the Boyne Valley in Ireland. They'd seen Newgrange, Nouth and Dowth, those amazing huge passage tombs. They thought, "We, we we want a bit of this here in Orkney. They therefore built May's Howe. To echo Newgrange. And we also know that they were fantastically successful, and people came from far and wide to visit and to take part in their midwinter solstice ceremonies. And we also know that they then took away the idea of using the kind of pottery that they were using up in Orkney, and we call it grooved ware. And your mate, Phil Harding, he dug some grooved ware at Bulford yeah, military camp, very close to Stonehenge, you could lose that pottery in Orkney. I mean, it's just phenomenal. The world was connected in such Mm. an interesting way even then. Amazing. What a great
4: episode, Tony. Thank you. And then we had something so totally different.
5: (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny. Well, I can remember when I first pitched this. Pies, guys, pies, guys, pies. (laughs) Tell us about pies. When I first pitched this to you, the the veil of, of... Failure to understand that came across your face was was perfect. Maybe
4: it's a guy thing.
5: Yeah. <laughs> it's a man thing, pies.
4: But I got into it.
5: Yeah, you did. You uh, wonderfully. I just felt that I wanted to do some of the episodes about things that people really like. I suppose about like being a football fan. And when I I was like talking to mates about the idea of doing a one-on-pies, and immediately they didn't say. What are you going to do? They just started talking about pies they know and love, stories about pies. It was quite bizarre.
4: Well, when we dug around with our brilliant guests, Neil Buttery and David Atherton, what was incredible about that is there were so many interesting facts.
5: Great history on pies. Do you you remember when I just flippantly raised Humble Pie and they told me the story, which we shouldn't give away now, but uh, if you listen to these extracts, hopefully, Melissa, you'll edit in.
4: Well, I'm going to edit
5: it in now. Let's hear Humble Pie. What about humble pie? Is that just a saying, or was there a humble pie?
3: There was an umble's pie. The H has been added <laughs> at some what, point. What, 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 the, what's an umble? The umbles were the was that well the offal, probably the chitlings or so the intestines, but yeah, general word for uh, offal, and of course it would be the humble dish it's where we get the word humble from so if there's a sort of a medieval banquet where everyone's invited everyone's in the same room as the lord but they're not all getting the same food as the lord that's for sure <laughs> and by the time you're at the people who are near the back door or even outside of the door <laughs> um they're getting the they're getting the humble pie yeah hence the saying
5: they'd be eating humble pie
4: Right, so after Pies, we got quite serious, Tony, but then... In a way. In a way, could have been. I think I said to you, let's not make this boring and serious.
5: And I said, if we get Jess Phillips, it ain't going to be boring and serious. And no, it wasn't. She is a star. Her ability to be first and foremost a person, a person who cares, and to show us that the way she chooses to express that is by being a politician, is being part of representative democracy, rather than being a politician and talking like a robot, which some people, even in the party I support, (laughs) often do.
4: That wasn't Jess. She walked in and she was honest and just herself from the moment she
8: arrived. It was great. Like, there's like 700 platforms to have a go at me, rather than just, you know, writing something horrible, a letter to the (laughs) newspaper. (laughs) Do they always say the same things to
5: you? I, yeah. I always get small you, small, <laughs> etc. Et talentless, old. Yeah. <laughs> A few others I won't go into. Yeah,
8: yeah, it's always the same. Uh, it's always about your body. Uh, your physical features will always feature. Um, the worst of it, in the worst cases, it's always about sexual violence occurring to you. There's like this sort of obsession, sort of knowing that that's the worst thing to say with impunity. Um, so it often goes to that, um, often, uh, for women, much so, more so than men, it will, it will it invoke your children. Invoking oh. your children is a very, very common thing to do. So how, this, sorry, this sounds like the, the, the worst question ever, but how does it make you feel? Uh, you do get used to it. Isn't that awful? Um, you do get used to it. It makes me feel a mixture of things. Sometimes it makes me feel desperate and sad and upset and, like, I don't want to carry on. And this woman I was talking to today in the tea room, she was just like, I sometimes think, is it all worth it? And I just said to her, like, will your children be any safer in the long term if you stop it? Like, if you stop doing what you're doing, the answer is no. So, you know, you've got to play the long game rather than the short game. Sometimes it makes me feel defiant and, um, like, I'm winning. Mm. Uh, that's the truth like you know if you have no dissent then you're not very interesting maybe (laughs) Uh, you know I wouldn't I don't want these people to agree with me I want to piss them off in a lot of cases but you know there are moments if I'm down I mean I'm medicated for anxiety because of the level of threat that is against me so and I'd say that's probably a standard uh, procedure these days in the House of Commons um i'm not saying they're pumping it into the water or anything or maybe they should that's a good idea um but yeah it's it's hard to deal with when when you're at a low ebb with other things in your life it can really attack you
5: i texted her after we'd made this car cast. i haven't told you this have no. I? Uh, and i said jess we must both give up our jobs and go on a rock and roll tour called Jess Phillips in Women in Politics and she says great when do we start I love
9: it.
4: this is the next thing you do don't yeah. it? I love it right so then we moved on to well the big event of the year well one of them one of them, uh, coronation. Yeah. Um, and it was something we sort of thought we should maybe we should do. You said that Kate Williams is a friend. And Kate yeah. Williams is a wonderful broadcaster. We knew she'd have loads of great facts about the history of coronations. And we also invited Emily Nash in, who's the Hello! magazine uh, royal expert. Wasn't, wasn't she great? great? Yeah, that
5: was your idea. And it was such a good idea because you got you really got an insight into what it's like being a, a royal correspondent. And like, it sounds daft, but like only being allowed to go to the lav at certain intervals over long periods of time. Absolutely. Um, The
4: marathon of covering an event like that, which is, you know, really intensive. I know it was great. They were so good together. And there was so much fantastic information about where does the Alban scepter come from, the crowns, all those crazy artefacts that the king got given as he sat on his coronation chair. It was great, wasn't
9: it? Emily, tell us about the, the, the new oil. Well, it's just been consecrated, as Kate said, in Jerusalem in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And again, you know, really, you can't get a more serious venue than that in terms of being the head of the Anglican Church now. But it also is symbolic because the olives have been grown on the Mount of Olives where the king's paternal grandmother was laid to rest, Princess Alice. And so there's that symbolism as well as the religious one. And... It's been brought over to the United Kingdom. Apparently, the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think, commissioned this oil to be made in this way. And it's entirely vegan, which is going to please all the hipsters out there. He's really going to...
1: But we can't have it afterwards. We can't start putting it on our pasta. even. Absolutely not. No,
9: sadly not. Absolutely not. But, you know, they really are thinking through the optics of everything at this point.
5: I... I think I'm right in saying that when the oil dribbles over the king's head, that, that it really is, your word was uh, arcane, in that it's about somehow within the oil is the Holy Spirit, and that as the king absorbs the oil, they kind of are genuinely God's chosen persons.
9: Yes, that is the moment, it's the most important moment of the coronation ritual. There you have that, you have the crowning, you have the, the monarch agreeing to their coronation oath. It's completely integral and yet I think that people felt that they didn't want to watch, they didn't want to be showing not only such a holy moment, but also a young woman having being anointed like that in a very simple gown. I, I think there's really a different sensibility about a, a much older man.
5: Smells.
4: Again, this was one that you had very early on, didn't you, as an idea? What did the past smell like? And it really captured my imagination because I suddenly thought, you know, what an amazing question. I've never thought of it, but it's brilliant.
5: I had done quite a lot of work on that. In, at different times, in different series, that question has arisen. What did something smell like?
4: But the past just... Putting it out there, like, yeah. and then so what we did is, well, I went to William Tullet, who is a fantastic smell historian, and, and he put me on to Tasha Marks, who creates smells for historical exhibitions, and they were so fun together, weren't they? They were, but
5: the problem with that week, I yeah. was so ill. i just crawled in. I'd, I'd got a. Oh, cu- right, you had a cold. I had a cold. Yeah. My sinuses were so I could hardly smell anything at all.
4: And your smell's not great anyway. You don't no, so your sense of smell. That was one of the anyway. reasons
5: I wanted to do it. I think it seems to be a family trait. My daughter says the same thing. Don't really smell, you know.
4: But you did smell their smell. I mean, you could oh, smell yeah. some of those smells. They yeah, were pretty yeah, pungent. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't... I was at the back of the studio, and by the end of the recording session, the bug of smell was, was over... Overpowering. I had no idea that smell could be so intensive and it just hit you in that way. Yeah. You know, it's maybe a kind of naive thing to say, but it really was a, a thing, wasn't
5: it? Supposing after we'd all gone, someone came into the studio and they went, Melissa and Tony, Christ <laughs> almighty. Yeah. The
1: smell of hell was, was unleashed that day, wasn't
5: it? So what have you got for us? Next? Well,
1: I was thinking we could talk about miasma and how actually bad smells used to be linked in history to... Bad health.
5: Oh, yeah, I've always found that interesting. This idea of miasma, and I've never really known what it is other than what
1: bad air. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good definition.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, miasma is kind of there's a reason that it's very difficult to understand because it's a term that's very loosely applied, but broadly speaking, it's bad air and smells that often come from like rotting stuff, and that. Infects people with diseases
2: like plague or cholera, for example.
1: Yeah, so talking of plague, I've just bought some rosemary essential oil here for you to have a little sniff. Because in those amazing beaked uh, plague doctor's masks, they would have herbs like rosemary and sage and angelica because it covered what they felt covered up the smell of the plague and so kept them safe.
5: Yeah, I like this one. This is broken through the blockage. Yes, is- yeah, yeah. yeah it can really we'll have you totally
1: unblocked by the end of this podcast. So, presu- <laughs> <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> yeah.
5: Presumably then, uh, during the time of the, the plague and the Black Death, rosemary would have been a big thing.
8: Yeah, absolutely. It was really popular. People would burn it. People would carry it around to smell too. Um, I'm just having a little sniff now as well. The price of it shot up. So Thomas Decker, the 17th century playwright, talks about how an armful of rosemary would be quite cheap, but then in times of plague, like a a mere handful of it would kind of be out of the price range of kind of most everyday people.
4: So, Tony, John Lloyd is our highest rating episode, interestingly. Who would have
5: thought that? This is John Lloyd who produced Blackadder and also lots of... Big series like Hitchhikers, Spitting Image, uh, QI, nine, QI, not the Nine O'clock News. Yeah,
4: what a guy! What a guy! Legend, but but a yeah,
5: kind of legend. But you would have thought that the majority of people wouldn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and yet, as you say, people on *Cunning Castle just love that episode, adored it. Yeah. I think I get stopped in the street and asked about that episode more than any other.
4: It's so great, people stop in the street. That that's wonderful. Well, for me, I don't know what everyone else who's listening thinks, but. Two men of a certain age having such a candid conversation, I started to think, God, am I meant to be here by the end of that? But about it how was, we
5: felt about Blackadder. It was Adder, so yeah.
4: incredible that, and the honesty of which John revealed what was effectively an emotional breakdown that he had um, at one point, from, probably from work, he started to have a crisis of confidence in his life. This is a highly creative, successful individual. He was so honest about that.
5: What was it that you felt inside, and how did you start to mend?
2: Well, okay, so I was sacked, um, as usual, by a couple of people, some of whom you know very well. Um, and and I, I was very, very upset and angry because it was very unfair because, again, I'd done some things. I'd helped people out in a difficult situation, and we had triumphed and won a lot of prizes, and they decided I was surplus to requirements. And I'd had enough of that. It happened too many times. So I kind of lost the plot. And at the same time, I went into my office. And in those days, shows how different I was. It was covered with awards. It was a, Every bit of wall space and no pictures. There were just awards, dozens of them. And because in commercials, you can win a lot of prizes quite fast. And I looked at these things and I thought, this is my life. 50 pieces of cardboard with writing on. That's it. That's all. That's what, all I amount to. What's the point of it? What's the point of being alive? What's the point of me? So it was very difficult. And the other thing is that I suddenly realized, you know, that I didn't know anything. You know, I'd spent a lot of time, as it we were, not paying attention because of the pieces of cardboard, you know, collecting those. And I didn't know what an atom was or a molecule or, you know, no, no idea. And, and I, it was a shock. I'd always thought of myself as r- not a genius or anything, but, you know, reasonably intelligent. You know, I'd got exams and things, and I thought, I don't know anything. So A, I'm useless, and B, I don't know anything, so all my validations were not available.
5: I love him so much, and he's, he, the colours of his emotions are, are so varied, often quite dark, and, and very honest about them, and yet this is the man who's making more funny stuff than anybody else in Britain.
4: I love the way you had to keep telling him to cheer up. <laughs> 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 he got there in the end. There were some yeah. brilliant yeah. facts for Blackadder fans as well. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great, that one.
7: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
5: You're listening to Tony Robinson's Coming Cast with me, Tony Robinson. And today, Melissa and I are bringing you the best bits from Season 1. Nights.
4: Well, knights was brilliant, wasn't it? I just could smell the testosterone in the room when those guys walked in. We had two amazing historians, Toby Catwell, Matt Lewis. Toby Catwell is an armoury expert, but he also dresses up in armour and he really lives and breathes being a knight. Um, Matt Lewis presents Gone Medieval. He's a fantastic medieval historian. Together, they were so revealing of knights. What did you feel about that episode?
5: Yes, I absolutely agree with you. I, I must admit that the... M- majority of the stuff that they told us, I, I already knew. But that's fair enough, isn't it? I'm not making it for myself. I'm making it for, uh, for other people. How do I know? Because I'm a knight uh and you know (laughs) darling i'm a knight Uh, knight. (laughs) and and i'm on a stamp (laughs) (laughs) and i'm on a stamp
4: yes stop bragging um i know i tell you what i i remember about that episode recording it is when you asked toby to tell you about the um the process by which it was it, it took to get knighted in the medieval times it was a very long detailed conversation it was great really interesting and it was like oh my god how long did it take and then he turned around and said so tony how was it for you And you told him, well, I got a letter from the palace, go along, walked in the wrong
9: direction. (laughs) (laughs) went home. (laughs) Went home. (laughs) Let's hear it.
5: Yeah. On the night in question, I got loads of mates in. And we turned on the telly at 10 o'clock and there was a picture of me in the daytime. And the first item on the news, on one half of the screen, there was me as Baldrick walking in (laughs) ermine when for some reason or other in that particular plot I'd been ennobled. And on the other side, there was me going up the steps in a very, very sharp Italian suit, Mm. I have to say. Just me, my wife and my two kids. And basically, I just walked into that big ballroom in, in Buckingham Palace, knelt down. Oh no, I forgot to kneel. I was just staring at Prince William it was the first one he'd done he was staring back at me and I'd I'd forgotten what I was supposed to do next and then I saw him sort of batting his eyes slightly and I realised he was subtly signalling for me to go down on my knees I know what the next word you're going to say is and it has four letters in it Dogs Dogs, dogs, dogs.
4: We just love dogs. I also <laughs> love dogs. I have a dog. You have a dog. It was a no-brainer. We're going to make a programme about dogs.
5: This was actually the very first programme we made. Do you remember? We made it, it before them. It was In in a way, it was like our pilot, yeah. the lost pilot.
4: Yeah, and it was so fun to make. And it made us think we wanted to make a whole series yeah. about, you know, your histories. And we talked to two dog professors, Clive Wynn and Ingrid Taig. They were both brilliant. So much takeout from that. Loads of stuff I didn't know about dogs. Yeah. I have a dog. I keep looking at my cute little schnappery. Are thinking,
5: you're related to a wolf, and it makes me laugh every time. It's been a fascinating discussion, but there is one huge question that I want to ask you both before we finish do dogs really love us? Because you could argue, couldn't you, that actually they're onto a pretty good thing and as long as they learn to look at us with their little winsome faces and to put their paw up when they're not getting sufficient attention and to bark cutely when they haven't been fed for a few hours, well, it's going to kind of look like love, but it's going to deliver pretty well for them.
8: So we have all sorts of scientific evidence now that our dogs really love us. We see it in studies that are done where dogs have been trained to lie perfectly still in MRI brain scanners, and we see patterns of activity in their brains when they're reminded that their beloved human is nearby. That show how rewarding they find the presence of their human. We find it in studies of the hormones in dogs' bodies, and there's a hormone called oxytocin, which spikes in the bodies of Two individuals who are deeply in love with each other and look lovingly into each other's eyes. And studies out of Japan show that this happens in dogs with their people just as it happens with people who are in love with each other.
5: I probably haven't told you, but Jack D got in touch because he and Sean Walsh, have got no. a, they've got a new podcast about dogs no. and they heard my episode and so they said, if we plug Cunning Cast, would you come on and be on our dog podcast? podcast so i did did you talk about holly berry oh we talked about my dog holly berry non-stop good uh because actually it's a long and in many ways quite a poignant story about uh, about my holly berry but the the funniest thing was that we all have voices that we talk to our dogs in jack actually has a voice which is the voice of his dog talking back at him.
4: I just can't wait to hear uh, Jack's voice. I mean, Jack does brilliant it, voices, doesn't he?
5: The voice of his dog is the voice of Mickey Flanagan. <laughs> he doesn't have a dog. Mickey Flanagan must quite clearly dress up in a dog suit and pad round after him the whole day. It's quite bizarre. But it was very it was very funny. And they're both terribly good at doing podcasts. So I would recommend their podcast, Oh My Dog, with Jack D and Sean Walsh and... Uh, It's really, really worth a listen.
4: I cannot wait to hear that. I absolutely am a huge fan of both of those guys, and I'm a huge fan of dogs. Tony, we, we find ourselves coming to the end of our, when I looked down our list, that census was number 10 and what a great number 10 it was. We had so much fun doing census. It was kind of like we started like, this is for data nerds. But actually, the amount of information was so fantastic, so interesting.
5: I think we both went through the valley of the shadow of doubt about this one because there's something about the word census which just kind of isn't sexy. <laughs> it surely isn't. The word sexy and census don't tend to They're go not, together. Not, not very often. (laughs) Um, and uh, and yet we both knew that the national census certainly as far as people have have any interest in history is concerned it's like the doomsday book of of current history isn't it it gives you so much valuable information that you just couldn't get any other way it's a snapshot of of a particular time. And I thought that Jes- uh, Jesme and uh, John, who we got in to talk about it, were were really great at painting that snapshot.
4: They were. They were both brilliant. And um, Jesme uh, works at the National Archives. So she does the history and she'd done the 1921 census.
5: Jesme Carlson.
4: And John Rulph-Smith, who is part of the um, Office of National Statistics. So he was talking about the the current census. Mm. And I love the way that they work together. Um, I don't know if they knew each other particularly, but, you know, we're talking about the a 100 years apart and they really kind of got it and they were able to make those comparisons across mm. time that was great any top facts from it
5: oh I, there's one that just leaps out of me i i have been interested as i think all the best historians are interested now in all the voices that we don't hear in history to be quite candid i don't think that there is all that much value in an awful lot of what we call history, because you never hear what the women were thinking or the black people were thinking. Or, you know, you could draw a list of about 20 people who are kind of expunged from from most history and They are there in the national census, but often really quite sneakily. So there would have been a lot of lesbians who were living together in the, say, the early 1920s, who weren't able just to stand up and come out, as it were. But they do in the national census, because if they're just living together on their own, they both call themselves head of household. You don't have in the rest of the national census two heads of household. Um, uh, and they'll talk about shared occupancy. They're actually waving a big lesbian flag. It's just it's done very, very subtly. And to know that, to understand that, I just I, I felt an awful lot of love for these women who are championing their relationships, albeit in quite a sly way.
4: Good for them. They were finding a voice, weren't they? Finding their voice and waving at us from history. That was so moving. Let's have a listen to that clip. In
9: 1921, homosexuality is illegal, which makes it a very different space to be publicly declaring yourself. However, we do still see people essentially telling us that, you know, they are they are living in those relationships where we see quite a lot of joint head of household or Mm -hmm. co-head of household appearing amongst people that we know to have been in same-sex relationships and then running a keyword search on that going okay so we know these people who we know to be gay or lesbian or trans um, identifying themselves in this way okay so are there other people and my colleague Vicky has blogged about this brilliantly and you can look at that in the National Archives blog and she talks about this at length but we we start to see other groups of people positioning themselves, identifying in that same way and particularly around that co-head of household, that idea that they're Actually, it's not so much as as expressing their sexuality, but they're they're expressing their equality in the household within a relationship. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that's really interesting.
5: Interesting, because so often we we're governed by where we are now, and we think that the ideas that we have and the attitudes that we have are just contemporary. But the idea that in 1921, two women would say we are both in charge of this household is kind of moving, isn't it? Yeah,
9: absolutely.
4: So, Tony, we've come to the end of Series 1. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have.
5: Enormously, enormously. Not as much as I'm going to enjoy Series 2.
4: Can't wait to make more. We will do stamps. What else are we going to do? We
5: have a list of about 40 things that, that we're going to <laughs> we do. I, I, I think, given how popular Stonehenge was, I think I want to do Hadrian's Wall.
4: Someone suggested that. In fact, I was going to say to our listeners if anybody's got any ideas about what they want for series two, send them to us. Please tweet to us. We can find us at Instagram as well, at Cunningcast Pod. Give us ideas. Hagen's Wool was a listener who loved Stonehenge and said, well, How about Hagen's Wool? And we're yes. like, Yes, absolutely, that works really well.
5: Everyone who is listening to us now could, I know, draw up 10 titles for Cunningcast in about 20 seconds.
4: There we go. There's a challenge to our listeners. So, Tony. Thank you. It's been great. I'll see you. I'll see you. Can't say it.
5: Do you know this is the about Bloody the third time? So she still hasn't got it right. Well I'm right. not to
4: present to Tony. No, no way. Way. <laughs> this
5: I is, was gonna this say This is our relationship with Pickery. God one, two, three, go, Melissa. I'll see you at series two.
4: <laughs> You're so mean to me.
5: Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation or suggest a theme for my next series, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. Don't forget to follow us and please subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. I'm Tony Robinson. My producer is Melissa Fitzgerald and this has been my Cunning Cast, a Zinc Media production. Stay tuned.
0: If you do not wish to accept this call, please hang
1: up now. Today, there are 2,916 people trapped in British prisons on the IPP sentence, many for minor crimes.
8: Once again, the system is just leaving me to rot.
1: None of them know when they're getting out, or whether their IPP sentence could actually mean life in prison.
0: There's no doubt that there are people in prison on IPP sentences who, if they were sentenced today, they would be on a determinate sentence, serve a year, two years, and they would be out of prison. And that's a scandal.
1: I'm Sam Asamadu. Over the course of this podcast series, I'm digging deep into the plight of IPP prisoners and their families.
2: I feel like I have a skeleton of a brother left.
1: To find out what has gone wrong with his sentence...
2: This sentence has finished him already. He's done his sentence now, at least eight times over.
1: And shine a light into the dark corners of the IPP prisoner story.
3: It's a bit of a Kafkaesque maze, really, which a lot of these IPPs seem to be on.
1: Trapped, the IPP prisoner scandal. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.